welcome to Progressive News Network. It is Sunday, June 21. I'm your host, Brooke Hines. And uh, wow, what a week. Uh, real quick, we got a really good show for you tonight. We've got Kardik Krishnayer, Rick Spizak, uh, Janine Moloff. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, the second wave of COVID, and we're going to uh, get a little bit more granular on what's going on with police reforms. The Janine Moloff has identified some artifice to what's being passed off as reforming for uh, police forces. And so we're gonna get into that a little bit. Carter Krishnayer is doing an amazing job over at the Florida Squeeze, uh, covering how Florida's experiencing a second wave of COVID-19 infections. Uh, he has a lot to say about this, and I think it's really important because uh, uh, as the title of tonight's show points out, you know, we're just not getting, we're not getting the true facts. And so here we are, little teeny tiny Progressive News Network. We're going to endeavor to bring you some true facts to some of these topics. Um, just cleaning up from a little bit from the week's news, uh, Donald Trump, trump palooza was a big flop in Tulsa, um, <clears throat> deservedly a flop. Uh, I shared a photograph on Twitter yesterday. Uh, it was a photograph that I believe Politico had shared. Um, and it was of the crowd being herded into the front of that rally. And I didn't understand what, when I shared the image yesterday, I didn't quite understand what was going on behind that. Um, not literally behind it, but figuratively. Donald Trump had been expecting, his campaign people had been expecting 100,000 people to show up at the auditorium in Tulsa, and they had built a second stage. Uh, he had said at one point that he had a, a million people who wanted to come to this event, and uh, it turned out that only 6,200 showed up. So something happened, right? What happened? It's amazing. The uh, Trump administration is completely uh, inept, um, uh, unable, incapable. Uh, they're 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 complete idiots on all counts. On all counts. But on this thing about running campaign events, you know, we were led to believe in 2016 that Donald Trump was just uh, and his team were, were geniuses at putting on these, uh, these, these events and getting people out to them and so on and so forth. And so when Donald Trump claimed that there was going to be a million people showing up, yeah, sure, a lot of people raised some eyebrows. But at the same time, a lot of people thought, God, wow, that's just a lot of people. Uh, What's that going to be like? You know, even if a, a tenth of that or five percent of that show up, you know, what's that even going to look like? Um, so what happened 
you know, <clears throat> we're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, you've got a racist administration scheduling a racist rally. Uh, originally, they scheduled it on Juneteenth, on June 19th um, in Tulsa, which, uh, which they at least backed off of the Juneteenth date, but scheduling it in Tulsa, the site of the um, uh, destruction of Wall, Black Wall Street uh, many, many years ago. Um, all of that was wrongheaded, but he makes it worse. <laughs> but wait, it gets worse. Um, so it seems like the Trump administration was trolled on social media, um, through social media, whereby uh, TikTok kids and Twitter folks reserved tickets for this event and did it on mass <laughs> to the tune of you know almost a hundred or, or almost a million reservations and it was trolling you guys it was uh, it was the ultimate um, shit posting so uh, the entire Trump administration was had by a complete practical joke which is hilarious. Um, and, uh, and then see, here's the thing, the way that he dealt with this just shows you, I, as if we needed any more, um, evidence just shows you how bad of, uh, of a leader in quotation marks Donald Trump is because, you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and he had this empty auditorium. 1921 in Tulsa. Thank you, listener. Um, yeah, this totally empty auditorium, and instead of spreading people out and letting them social distance, they crammed as many people up into the front bottom area as they possibly could to make it seem more filled out, to make it seem more crowded. And it took a while for there to be other photos getting out of showing all the empty seats up along the balcony. And that wasn't the only way that they tried to fudge the appearance of interest in this rally. They also corralled all of the rally goers through this one teeny tiny gate going into the venue. And <clears throat> the picture that I shared is just this, uh, sea of people cheek to jowl uh i posted not a mask to be seen and then it, it took hours but later that night we we were able to find teeny teeny tiny within that crowd two little masks two people wearing masks but this is you know ostensibly 6200 people waiting to file into the tulsa uh, civic auditorium and you know, two people wearing masks. I mean, come on, that's, that's terrible. And I, I bet you that even though people have been put on notice that Donald Trump will take it personally as a personal affront if you wear a mask, uh, I bet you anything there were some people there who were, um, who are either immune compromised or for other reasons, uh, other health reasons. You know 
didn't so much want to be pressed up cheek to gel with other people. Um, I just, that's just a feeling of mine. I just feel like that there were family members that got dragged along to this who much would much rather not have been dragged along to it. And also, you know, for the people who did go, they're going to go home to their families uh, who would, who may or may not support Donald Trump and they're going to pass along whatever it is that they picked up at the rally. Now they can't uh, pass along, you know, bad ideology. Thank God that's not contagious. You have to make a choice to buy into someone's really awful ideology. So protect yourselves. Uh, but, um, you know, I feel really bad for the extended, you know, the families, the extended families, parents, wives, kids, uh, you, you know, folks that are going to come into contact with these guys who crammed into this auditorium through this whole thing. And, uh, you know, we, we found out that, what was it, six people in Trump's entourage who were setting up the events had tested positive for COVID and uh, weren't attending. So <clears throat> it goes straight to the top, y'all. Uh, the COVID was actually coming from, you know, people within the uh, within the administration and within the event. So, you know, there's that. Uh, and let it not be lost on anyone that the the Trump made people sign a waiver before going to this event, by the way. Uh, you know, they're aware, they are aware of the potential for liability with regard to COVID. Um, you know, liability that could cost them some money or get tied up in some kind of uh, litigation, but they don't care about these, uh, about uh people being liable to catch COVID and, you know, have lifelong lung damage from it. That's, that doesn't rise to the, to uh, uh, meet the threshold of something to worry about with these guys. So as if you needed another reason to dislike the Trump administration, there's that. Um, uh, last week, moving on. We're going to leave that behind. That's that's about as much uh, Trump as I can take for now. Now, um, Carter Krishnayer is coming on at 7:30. We're going to discuss COVID, and then Rick Spizak is joining us at eight o'clock. To uh, he's got some COVID stuff, and I think some uh, a little bit more uh, Trumpity Trump Trump stuff. So we will return to that topic here in just a bit. Um, but I wanted to, I wanted to give a little update, uh, some thoughts on the protests and the rebellion and the uprising, whatever you want to call it, that we had for the last, uh, going on a month now, is it three weeks? It's getting near a month. Um, it just struck me this weekend, you know, so, so Juneteenth was Friday. And just to review, Juneteenth, June 19th, um, 1865, was when uh, the Emancipa Emancipation Proclamation was finally enforced. So the pro proclamation was legally, and it was legally went into effect on January 1, 1863, 
but it took two and a half years for word to get across the country um, all the way to Texas. And, you, you know, you can bet your sweet bippy that plantation owners and uh, people who were slave owners, uh, it's not like they were going to spread the news amongst uh, the their people that they have working on their um, farms and so on and so forth. You know, it's not like they circulated the uh, the news to everybody. In other words, they wanted to get as much free labor out of people as they possibly could. So <clears throat> while news of that spread in um, certain parts of the United States uh, prior to 1865, it took that long for it to get down to Texas. And um, uh, we also had to um, call, in, call in the troops. Yeah. So this wasn't something that was a matter of putting up a few posters and getting everyone to understand that this is the law of the land now and so on and so forth. Although, you know, here's, here's the wording of what was spread um, on June 19th, 1865. The people of Texas are informed that in accordance with a proclamation from the executive of the United States, comma, all slaves are free. And that freed 4 million people who were enslaved. Um, a lot of people are talking about Juneteenth becoming uh, recognized better as the date of the rebirth of our nation. And so June 19th kind of joins the July 4th celebrations as uh, as a bookend. Yeah. If July 4th was a the birth of a nation, then June 19th is the rebirth. Right. That's uh, that's that's when we actually started behaving um in accordance somewhat with the um, propaganda that, that we are fond of telling ourselves about ourselves. Um, Juneteenth, Elon Musk, Elon Musk this week uh, says, uh, oh, congratulations, we're making Juneteenth a holiday. <laughs> at Tesla and, you know, Associated Industries. And someone on Twitter said, oh, great, that's so nice of you of getting a paid holiday to uh, to your workers for Juneteenth. And, and Elon Musk is like, oh, oh, no, no, not so fast. <laughs> not a paid holiday. <laughs> Are you kidding? It's a, it's a you got to use your PTO, but we'll call it an, ex a, 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 an excused absence. Oh my God, these people are rotten to the core. Um, Tesla employees and everybody else out there in this beautiful land of ours, uh, may we soon have Juneteenth join the rest of the national holidays as a fully PAID paid day off as it should be. I mean, what better way to celebrate uh, the emancipation of slavery, of slaves from slavery, than to actually pay people for the day that they take off to 
recognize that occasion. Um, Juneteenth this year was amazing. Uh, statues of Confederate uh, figures. These statues fell all over the place. Um, Albert Pike in D.C. There were there were a number of statues that were toppled in Raleigh, North Carolina. There there was uh, some. Uh, actions out west that were aimed at statuary of uh, conquistadors uh, and you know just genocidal maniacs from you know just of, of a slightly different genre but uh, the point being that Juneteenth this year I think grew up you know it kind of kind of came into its own and I think that people kind of took it back and uh, and and uh, you know I wholeheartedly support the uh, folks who are who are taking back some of this history in their cities and let's um let's remind ourselves that these statues these confederate statues these are not fine art okay this is not Medigliani or Michelangelo or you know this is not great art these statues were created they were mass produced and and seeded throughout the country uh, uh, right before and during the civil rights movement just to remind people of you know you better look out because we're racist and we're going to, you know, the South's going to do it again or whatnot. This is not art. This is not grand art. I'm a fan of public art. Love the public art. We need more public art and we need more good art. These things are not good art. Now they are, <clears throat> I think, at this point, they are collectibles. <laughs> They should be collected somewhere uh, and 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 kept in the dark in a in a I don't know temperature and humidity controlled room and brought out every so often to remind ourselves what idiots we are. Uh, maybe that, maybe that. But you know Juneteenth, with all of the statue toppling, with all of the stuff that that went on, it occurred to me. <clears throat> We we didn't see any looting. Like like what happened to all the looting? The looting that was like a big uh, big issue <clears throat> at the beginning of all of these uh, Black Lives Matters protests. There was all this looting, and there were uh, a lot of uh, there was a lot of photography and a lot of um, what do you call it? Gossip. A lot of people talking about the fact that people who were breaking windows and breaking into stores didn't seem like protesters. Uh, there was an auto zone in, um, God, was it, was it Oklahoma? Uh, there was an auto zone that got um, broken into and there's uh, video footage of a guy looking anything if, if anything, this, this guy looked like he just stepped out of the military. Um, a white guy, he's got an umbrella, he's got his hoodie pulled up over his head, and he's just got like a little hammer, and he's just very efficiently going window to window, ting, 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 all by himself. Yeah. You know? He wasn't in any hurry. 
he he didn't seem to be, you know, swept up in the spirit of the moment or anything like that. He had a job to do and he went and did it. And people saw him doing it and started filming him and started asking questions. Now, I'm I'm of many minds uh, of, you know, what's been going on in the last couple weeks, but something that is just kind of nagging me is that I think that there's a possibility that um, some dark actors have used these protests um, as cover to try and start some shit and We've been known to do that. The United States has been known to do that. As a matter of fact, any place that there's been a uh, um, an overturn of power, you know, once people start getting power and they want to make social reforms and pay people a living wage and make sure that they have health care and make sure that they're taken care of, somehow the United States just seems to get involved and topple those leaders or make sure that a little war starts to happen or this and that. And those are called color revolutions. Okay. And color revolutions are usually, you know, run through agencies such as the national endowment for democracy, USAID, the state department, you know, this, that, and the other, we will use uh, these different agencies to um, funnel money to bad actors who will then do the bidding of the the great the great atomic power to the north the united states and so it it serves the interests of those powers if there is looting and if there is violence that they can point to you and they can say um look we had to clamp down and we need a law and order approach and yada 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 and you you don't have to go very far in order to prove that, okay? So when the police in Atlanta said, okay, we're just not, we're not going to, to, to go out there and cover any more of these protests anymore um, for whatever reason, uh, it just so happened that suddenly there wasn't any violence. Yeah, it's crazy how that works. If there's not throngs of of um, uh, militarized thugs crawling through the streets in tanks, throwing tear gas, and shooting people with rubber bullets, it's amazing how people can just sort of have a protest and and move along. And it shows you too, uh, stating the obvious that that the police in, in, in these cities were, the police was actually instigating the violence. And, and that's just really sad. That's really sad. That's really scary because that shows you how alone we all are. It shows you how lost um, the country is at this moment. And that reminds me, I've got a great article to share with you guys. This is from Truth Out. This is uh, published... This was, uh, yeah, Friday, June 19. Uh, writers, the reporter's name is Jen Armstrong, G-I-N. Corporations are bankrolling U.S. police foundations without public oversight. Corporations, 
funding police foundations without without any oversight. Now, uh, we were going to have Awkward on tonight to talk a little bit about less lethal um, uh, uh, weaponry. It's one of his things. This kind of touches on that. So I want to kind of, you know, chum the water just a little bit with this. Uh, this sounds really boring, you know. Corporations, police foundations, bankrolling, oversight. And what does all that mean? Um, it's really simple. The police already have 25 to 40% of city budgets. Whatever your city has to spend on everything, the police are already taking between 25 and 40%. Uh, that's the lion's share uh, for anyone keeping up. Uh, nothing else comes close to how much that single line item is uh, in uh, just about any city. Now, with those already massive budgets, uh, um, oh, to 45% of municipal budgets, sorry, 20 to 45. Um, police, the police have foundations which are to the side of the police department. And for you know us civilians and most normal people, the idea of a police foundation doesn't make a lot of, it doesn't you know, break through the noise. It doesn't make a lot of sense. But here's, here's what they do. Foundations can purchase equipment and weapons with little public input or oversight. The Houston Police Foundation has an entire page on its website showcasing the equipment it purchased for the police department, including uh, SWAT equipment, LRAD sound equipment, and dogs for the canine unit. Philadelphia Police Foundation purchased uh, drones, uh, ballistic helmets. Atlanta Police Foundation funded a major surveillance network of over 12,000 cameras, and in Los Angeles, the police foundation funded the purchase of controversial surveillance software from Palantir. Okay, the, that's the uh, Palantir is like the CIA's like like a tech company. Um, so, so you got this one side where you get these corporations coming in. I'm going to tell you a little bit about who these corporations are. Uh, it's the usual suspects that you, you might imagine. Um, but the second part of this is that these foundations also provide a public-private structure or public-private partnership, a close working together of these two units, of these two facets of, of society um, in a way that cuts us out. It cuts the people out entirely. So when I'm talking about corporations, I'm talking about Bank of America, Goldman Sachs, uh, BlackRock, um, Larry Fink, the CEO of Bankrupt, uh, <laughs> Bankrupt. BlackRock, by the way, um, is personally involved in the New York City Police Foundation. Uh, you've got retail and food industries such as Target. That's interesting, Target. Starbucks, Coca-Cola, Walmart. Big tech and communications includes Amazon, Motorola, Verizon. That's your cell phones, y'all. Uh, fossil fuel companies and utility companies like Chevron, Marathon Petroleum, and uh, DTE Energy, which is the Detroit, uh, um, it's a mid Midwest utility giant. Uh, 
And then you've got regional and local power centers. These include like sports teams and entertainment franchises. So like, you know, your favorite NFL or NBA teams or Major League Baseball, you can pretty much bet that they're, you know, fluffing, fluffing the caps on the side over here. Colleges and universities. Um, Charlottesville, Virginia, the site of the violent Unite the Right rally in 2017 that left Heather Heyer dead after a car attack. Um, the local police foundation is totally sponsored by uh, UVA. Uh, and UVA also has university faculty on the police foundation. So um, real estate firms, uh, developers, other local companies. So like, you know, we're in Florida. So you can imagine that uh, big developers and uh, contractors are, are in on all of this as well. So that is one facet, just one little thing to keep in mind. And we're going to, in just a second, bring Cardic on. We're going to change change it up a little bit. We're going to talk about COVID. Um, just give me a second. I'll be right back. Alrighty, I think we get Cardick on the line. Hey, Cardick, you there? I am. How are you? I am well. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about COVID. I have put the um, for uh, listeners. We've got Cardick's new piece that's front on the floor to squeeze. I dropped a link to that in the show notes. It's called "Elected Officials in Florida and Dereliction of Duty." But um, and that's COVID nineteen. Uh, I also wanted to make sure and remind myself to mention that Cardiff you've also done, started a video, short video series on the China India conflict, right? Yeah. So I, I and that I and you can find it on my Twitter feed at KKFLA seven three seven. I'm just trying to explain the basics of the situation and. That, unfortunately, means a lot of history and a lot of understanding why the lines were drawn and understanding colonialism. Uh, so, uh, so much of what has happened in terms of conflict in the developing world work over the course of the last 70 years are because the British or the French drew lines very arbitrarily in, in, in their haste, in their kind of ignorance, uh, and in their, in, in some cases, in, in their anxiousness to leave places, right, and and and, uh, and, and get out of those places. So uh, this is yet another example of that. Uh, so basically, 
if you're looking at it uh, at, at, uh, directly based on that, you would say, oh, well, China's probably in the right. But then the intervening event is, of course, China uh, becomes a, a communist dictatorship in 1949, and uh, the Dalai Lama has to flee to India uh, 10 years later. So uh, that, that then makes the situation more confusing, and that is a big part of this story, even if it's not being talked about uh, in the U.S. media. So check it out. It's at KKFLA 737. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you for, uh, for uh, you know, kind of laying that out for us. But so we're going to talk about COVID, and you've got – uh, you've been following this really closely, and I, I, I feel like some on some days when I feel like I'm taking crazy pills on this, I reach out uh, to reality check because I feel like I'm like the last person in the world who's aware of COVID. But we've got a problem happening right now in Florida, and I, I thought I'd let you uh, tell everyone a little bit about that. Yeah, we have a big problem in Florida, and we had a small problem of the – not the last time I was on your show, we were talking uh, about something else, but the previous time before that, I was mentioning to you, I think we made three or four weeks ago, and listeners probably remember this, that, look, uh, the, 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 the numbers now are beginning to creep back up. I am very worried that we are going to have a situation where we are going to have similar numbers of infections as we did at, at the so-called peak when everything was shut down in early April. Well, as it turns out now, we have uh, blown those numbers away, right? We're, we're, we're well past that. Um, late May, you began to see an uptick in cases uh, on a daily basis. And then you know, it would come back down for a day or two. The weekends especially were slow. But the seven-day average was beginning to creep up. And then uh, it began to take off. And I wrote a story two weeks ago at the Florida Squeeze, exactly two weeks ago, so that was on June 7th when I realized this thing was racing out of control. So the first week of June was really critical, which was um, a lot of residual cases that obviously when you contract COVID, you don't get tested right away. You don't feel symptoms right away. Uh, And uh, so it was the Memorial Day weekend. It was two weeks later, which was June 4th, June 5th, 10 to 14 days later that, at that point, I knew my intuition that I'd spoken about on this show previously, which I think probably what may have, we may have been, I may have been on the week after Memorial Day, um, was correct. And cases were being spiked up, and now it's just raised out of control. The problem I have is, well, I have many problems with this. And, and as I said two weeks ago, I wrote a piece about the irresponsibility of Florida's leaders and why they were putting economic considerations over public health. And then, as you said today, I, I penned another piece uh, just about their complete dereliction of duty. But the thing that bothers me is that there has been a very organized effort by the right to, um, to distribute talking points, to create anti-science narratives that essentially meant every time, and I can't even begin to tell you the number of Twitter followers I lost because I was beginning to alarm people about COVID in Florida in late May and and the first week of June. Um, There were always these myopic comebacks about, well, wearing a mask doesn't really, oh, do you want us to shut back down? The economy will collapse. Well, no, I don't want us to shut back down. I want us to reopen responsibly, and I want everybody to wear a mask and to observe social distancing. Since that's not happening, yeah, we're going to have to shut down because you guys don't want to be responsible. Um, 
And also, you know, every time people would complain about the economy, I would try and tell them you can't recalibrate an economy when half the public is scared to leave their house. So the, the thing that we thought all along was, and we're seeing in Europe, because uh, the, the EU has gotten control of it, even the UK, which was uh, quite frankly far worse than the United States in the response initially, has gotten a handle on this, that the longer-term shutdowns led to a certain degree of confidence that when society opened back up, um, cases began to continue to drop or flatline. It didn't start creeping back up. And normal life began to resume. So there were phases, phase one, phase two, phase three, phase four. We've outlined all that in this case, right? But we're not doing it in a, in a logical fashion. And um, so we, we've, you know, just to summarize, the last three weeks, uh, anytime uh, I start talking about this, which is most of the time, I mean, in, in spite of Black Lives Matter and, and Trump's madness, uh, and India, China, I, I probably have spent 75% of my time talking about this and 25% about the other three things combined. Um, there has always been a coordinated talking point response from people on the right to what I'm saying. So, Brooke, to me, that's very alarming because not only are they rejecting science, but they have a coordinated um, way of pushing back on science and pushing back on um, people's uh, concerns about public health in order to stoke this sort of cognitive dissonance and anti-intellectualism, which uh, has put the United States in the worst position of any industrialized nation in, uh, in this world, and has made Florida now the epicenter of the virus in the United States. So where Florida, on a daily basis over the last 10 days, we have more per, uh, positive tests per capita than Russia, India, Pakistan, uh, Colombia, all these countries that we're being told are now the kind of the epicenter by the international news media. So just two on that for a minute. We, we do not have as many cases per capita per day, new cases, as Brazil, but the rate we're going, we're, we'll pass them too pretty soon. Yeah, and we've talked, and it's been a while, but we've talked before about exponential growth. So if you've got like 60 people who are infected today, and they go about their normal business, they're going to infect a number of people. Uh, the estimate has been somewhere between four and six people. And then those four to six people from those 60, they infect, and it goes on and on. And so those numbers get really big really quickly. And something that I am a little alarmed at, well, very alarmed at, in Florida is that we're seeing huge upticks in rural counties like Swanee, Glade, yep. and Madison County. Yeah, and, and so the governor, and this is what really frustrates me about DeSantis, because it's very easy for MSNBC, because they're all over it, because it's Florida, and, and they're, we know their political banks. Um, not that I'm not a, a progressive, but we know what MSNBC is. They're kind of a DNC television. But um, MSNBC has been very, and, and uh, outlets like that have been very quick to call the Santa's baby truck, right? And that's now mm -hmm. all over the country. But I think it's really unfortunate because during this crisis, the Santa's showed signs of being independent and mature and looking at data, trying to use data to instruct this approach. He actually pushed back on some um, Democrats in South Florida who wanted to reopen the three counties down here quicker than um, his uh, 
his administration and the people around him who were looking at the data from Dave Broward and Palm Beach counties uh, wanted to. Um, so I think he had shown a little bit of balance. His instincts were, you know, maybe we need to get through this and then have the economy reopen for, um, for the fall tourist season. Then I think two things intervened. One was that there were the MAGA people uh, were, were going crazy in the state. They were anti-mask. They were demanding to reopen the state. Uh, Florida did not reopen when Texas... I, MSNBC keeps saying Florida was one of the first states to reopen. We were not, actually. Uh, Texas, Georgia, Arkansas, Tennessee, there were a bunch of states that went before us. Um, we, we initiated phase one in the middle of May. I think Georgia initiated it the last week of April, so, uh, by comparison. So um, he... Um, got pushed by the MAGA people, quite frankly, who are his political base, and he doesn't want to get primaried. He doesn't want Trump uh, going on Twitter and shooting off about him. So then he, he begins to cave to them, and then there was this idea from three major professional sports leagues, the NBA, um, Major League Soccer, and Major League Baseball, that they would, um, because there were restrictions on their ability to play games in places like California and New York and Illinois, that, well, we will re- relocate our entire league to Florida, and this will be a big economic boom to you. And in the case of N- the NBA and MLS, we'll use Disney. In the case of Major League Baseball, we'll use the Grapefruit League um, venues. Then suddenly DeSantis became like Trump, and it was like, okay, we have to reopen. We have to do this quickly. And, and so we go phase one, mid-May. Phase, uh, phase two open, uh, was triggered on June 5th. There was already very clear evidence, as we talked about earlier, uh, and I had been come on the show that week, that things were beginning to get uh, a little dicey down here again. But he goes ahead and triggers phase two. Um, Major League Soccer is coming to Orlando this week uh, to start training. Their their, uh, tournament, their competition in Orlando will start June 7th. The NBA is coming July 31st, and people come before that to train. And then there's talk of the WNBA, the Women's League, coming. in addition to this, and, and I think this is a, a really critical piece of, of, of what we're talking about, there were a number of local um, governments throughout the state that refused to pass any sort of social distancing or masking ordinances, and they came to the MAGA people. So then what I wrote about on the Florida Squeeze, and I know much of what we write on the, on the, on the side, and you've obviously written for us a lot in the past book, is is opinion, but this was one actual investigative story I did, which was about uh, employees getting fired because they wanted to wear masks and they were in a hostile kind of MAGA environment, uh, people getting harassed in, in restaurants and in public places because they wanted to wear a mask. And this was all going on very publicly, very openly. Right-wingers were flaunting their anti-mask, just like they, you know, they've done anti-vaccine stuff, all that stuff in the past. But the, the MAGA culture, and remember, this is Trump's home state now, the MAGA culture of pushing back on mask wearing, uh, this, this nonsensical individualism and freedom uh, argument that, that this whole decline in American values and, and community orientation that, that started with Reagan um, has just now escalated and, and uh, turned Florida, quite frankly, into, an, into a national embarrassment and maybe even into an international embarrassment. As I said, we are an epicenter now. Uh, we are the epicenter in the U.S. and our uh, rate of new transmissions over the course of the last 10 days uh, is higher than many of the so-called epicenters globally of this virus. 
So it is it is quite staggering. Uh, I'm following I'm following the new COVID website that is um, and I can't remember her name. The person who was fired. Rebecca Jones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Rebecca Jones. Uh, so she's got a she's got a website using the available data coming out of the um, Department of Health, Florida Department of Health, and it's it, it seems to me to be a lot more complete than than the original one. And yesterday we we topped four thousand. Like yesterday, which is weekend, we topped four thousand new cases. Yeah, and, and as it turns out, we did today also. Uh, the data was incomplete. Now there's a lot of people saying, including in the media, including on MSNBC, that there's some manipulation of the data that took place today. I'm not going to say that because I know early in this process. Uh, again, I've been tuned into what we've been doing since the beginning in Florida, whereas. A lot of the national media were concerned about New York and Michigan, and, and now uh, uh, they're piling into Florida uh, to cover this. But they, at one point, were uh, releasing data uh, twice a day, roughly on the intervals they released it today. That having been said, they gave no indication that that was the case. So this morning, when um, people like I who get, the, who get the data from the state uh, and report on it, when, when I got it, I thought it was – the, the complete data with all the testing that had been processed oh. overnight on Saturday. Now, and that's, that's how it's worked the last six weeks or so. As it turns out, then, at 3 o'clock or so, there was a, 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 a new chart that showed up on the DOH site and a number adjustment, uh, which put us at about 4,700 for the day or 4,600. Um, oh, my God. Pops yesterday's record. Now, we know traditionally testing has been lower on the weekend. Uh, tomorrow will we'll, we'll reflect Sunday testing. The number will probably be lower. You have to then keep an eye on Tuesday and Wednesday because what we've seen in the course of this three-week escalation, rapid escalation in numbers of cases in Florida is that there will be a little dip uh, Sunday, Monday, although this Sunday there wasn't one, uh, but then it just races away Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And at this point, we are dealing with a uh, Republican Party in Florida that does not understand, one, that um, they need Florida to be fully reopened by October for, uh, for the beginning of the really busy tourist season, and two, that they, uh, um, they are now putting their own president's re-election in jeopardy because uh, there are, there's obviously polls that show Joe Biden ahead in Florida. I don't put much stock in them. I think that it's still a state which Trump is favored in. However, I think the longer this goes on and the longer Florida becomes an embarrassment, there are enough um, more independent-minded voters. And in fact, I, I know of a few examples of people who were mega-maga people, so to speak, that uh, know someone who contracted coronavirus or contracted coronavirus themselves and now uh, are, are supporting Joe Biden. And so I, that's the other thing that, that really is surprising to me is that if they were going to um, – since they are so political and calculating in everything they do, the, the GOP, that if they were going to allow one state to race out of control, it would not be a state that could potentially flip the election, which, uh, for, look, if Trump does not win Florida, he does not get reelected. Um, I thought from a Democratic perspective, Florida didn't really matter. Uh, the Democrats need to flip the upper Midwest. But if Biden does flip Florida, then there's really kind of very – not much of a path for uh, 
for Trump to get reelected. So that, that's, that's also very strange to me, that they're so dug into their ideology. They're so blinded by what's going on outside of their little group that they're making some very tactical mistakes with the economy and with this virus in their state. Well, you know, you said something really big. All of that is, is you know, uh, yes, big yeses. Uh, when when somebody contracts COVID, uh, the the mega maga person that that you uh, uh, alluded to a moment ago, they contract or someone they know contracts uh, COVID. That completely changes uh, your your outlook on life. Uh, we call it phenomenology in theory, uh, but it's a lot simpler than that. It is how you perceive yourself and it's how you perceive the world. And uh, it, we've known for a very long time that, uh, that how we perceive things and how we feel things in our body has absolute primacy over ideology, over the, you know, uh, um, you know, church, state, uh, you know, issues of class. If you feel something in your body, and it affects you, uh, it, especially in the case of, of uh, uh, threats of mortality, like going to war, for instance, um, or being shot. Uh, getting, getting a terrible uh, virus is much the same thing. So it is going to cut through ideology like a freaking knife. And it, it doesn't surprise me at all that that's, that's what it takes. You know, that, that uh, you, you've got people who have built up these, these ideologies for so long, and they, they can come crumbling down really, really quickly if the right thing happens to some people, you know, to, happens to you at the right time. Yeah, and, and, and let me point out something else. So, so a big conservative talking point and pushback against what is happening in the state of Florida, and I neglected to mention this earlier, so I apologize, and I meant to, um, was that they keep saying, well, um, there's like a 0.005% uh, know, chance you'll die. And then if you contract the virus, there's like a 4%, 3 or 4% chance you'll die. And deaths are going down in the state. So um, what difference does it make? So this is, this is like the mentality. When you, when you send off American soldiers to fight and die in a war, and, and, and not just do the men and women come back in body bags, but they come back wounded, and they have PTSD, and, they, and they're suffering for the rest of their life. There are so many people in this state that have contracted this virus. They have beaten back the virus, but they're going to have respiratory problems for the rest of their life. They're going to have psychological issues for, for many, many years. And the median age of the contractions, this is so important, is coming down pretty rapidly. In your home county, in Orange County, yesterday – for the first time, we had the median age of those contracted at 29. Now, overall, in Orange County, it's down to 38, which is still kind of pretty low. Um, but we're seeing that, that median age come down. So, yeah, the death rate goes down because um, the people who are contracting it are younger and, at least in, in theory, should be healthier and, 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 and probably more, more able to, to beat back the virus. But then you're also crippling the productivity of your economy. They love the economy so much. They love to talk about economic uh, factors so much. You're taking people who are active in the workforce, you're, you're, you're exposing them to this virus, which is, uh, if it doesn't kill them, that, that doesn't mean that they are uh, as productive or can be as productive as they can be. So 
there's so many um, so many ominous things happening in the state. And the, the as, as we go on, I, at first I thought people were just being myopic and, and, and ignorant. And then I realized, as I kept getting, because every day this would happen, every morning I would report the numbers, I would talk about what was going on, and I would get pushed back. I realized there is a coordinated effort on the right. I don't know if they distribute talking points first thing in the morning. I, I, I don't know how they do it. I mean, I guess <laughs> they all want uh, Fox News or, or, or go to townhall.com or read Newsmax, whatever the case. They all are very coordinated. Maybe some of them are bots, but, but some of them are actually people I know. So, um, so it's a hard spot that have this very coordinated response. And every single thing that they say can be very easily debunked by science and by statistics, and actually in many cases by common sense. Yeah, well, I, I, and there's a lot of there's a lot of people who aren't even in the uh, MAGA family per se who uh, really I, I, they they want this uh, kind of contrarian uh, uh, air about themselves, like they they uh, oh, yeah, um, yeah. cultivate this contrarianism. And, and so, you know, you get people who are like, uh, well, what's going to happen, you know? So, so first of all, uh, uh, COVID only kills whatever, you know? So, so their first argument is that it doesn't kill that many people, uh, which right, right. totally ignores yeah. Yeah, how, how it leaves you. And then uh, secondly, it's, um, uh, so where is so the it doesn't, doesn't mitigate it. That's it. There are, there are, they'll find the one study. It's just like uh, climate change, right? There's one scientist out there who says, oh, you know, humans aren't responsible for climate change. And they'll always cite that person. I think it's, it's actually uh, Professor Gray at Colorado State in that case. Um, in, in this case, they'll find the one study that says, oh, well, mask wearing doesn't help. And then they'll keep citing that over and over again, even if you point them to like five or six different studies. And then if you point them to the WHO, they'll say, oh, that's Chinese propaganda. You know, you, you, you sometimes can't win with these people. So that's number two yeah. always. It's a map. It's, it's a rationality. And, you know, we, and we've been talking a long time about how we're in a, a crisis of, of reason that, uh, that, is, that is fairly new. I mean, Al Gore taught, wrote a book about a crisis of reason 20-some years ago. But I think that with Trump, uh, that, that crisis of reason has really come home to roost. And it's not just because of how he uh, uh, banged the drum about fake news. I think that everybody is having trouble being able to discern what is a uh, true fact, what is, what is good information, and what isn't good information. People don't have the tools they feel like to sort through that stuff. And good note, the Lord knows that the cable news isn't helping anybody. I mean, Fauci had to walk back his statements on, on the masks. So, so they told us on masks, uh, don't, don't feel like you have to use them because they don't really work to protect you. Uh, and what they were really doing was trying to save the masks for, uh, people in the uh, health care professions, I guess that's what they're yeah. doing. That's what they said yeah. they're doing. And now they're having to, to backtrack on that, which is so destructive because now, you know, everybody who said, oh, I don't, 
I don't want to believe the CDC or I don't want to believe Fauci. Now they have a really good reason to believe Fauci. You know, I mean, at least at least at least he came clean on it. Like there's that. Yeah. So there's been that. There's been this this you know massive kind of slandering or or, or, or attacks on on Fauci. That seems to be a conservative pastime. One other thing I neglected to mention, Brooke, that I should have at the outset is uh, the president um, well, and the governor have said, well, the reason there are more COVID uh, positive, te- uh, positive cases is because we're doing more testing. No, actually, that's not true. The, the rate of percent, uh, positive per, uh, percent uh, per test in Florida, I know at one time in, in New Jersey and in New York it was 40 or 50 percent at, at the height in those states. Um, it's right now at the same, the same level it was uh, at our previous peak in early April. And if you compare where we are uh, compared to the last week of May, we're generally administering about the same number of tests, maybe a slightly more tests per day than we were in late May. And, and uh, the number of positive cases per test, instead of being 3% like it was, I mean, let's just let's just talk about Orange County because I looked at the numbers in your county really well. First, first of June, 1.4 percent of the tests that were administered came back positive in Orange County. Uh, today, it was 18 percent. Wow. Days later, so so uh, and the number of tests that were administered were slightly higher today than it was June one, June two. I, I can't remember which date this was. June two, June one, but um, roughly the same amount of tests, slightly more tests now. So the idea that DeSantis and Trump say, oh, we're testing more. Um, and then apparently Trump yesterday in Tulsa said, oh, we're going to cut tests so we cut the number of positive cases. Now, everyone thought that that was uh, funny or a joke. Uh, uh, Jake Tapper did grill Peter Navarro on it this morning on, on uh, CNN. But that really hit me because I thought, oh, wow. Because I have seen days that they've administered less tests in the, in the last week in Florida thinking, aha, they're administering less tests because there'll be less positives, and then the conservatives all have a talking point about the rate going down and that we were all hysterical. So when he said that, even though Peter Navarro this morning said it was a joke, it was lighthearted, don't be surprised if that's the direction they go, where they start putting requirements again on who can get tested, because that was part of the reason early in the, uh, in, in the epidemic, uh, in the pandemic, that there were so few tests administered. And also, as you said, with masks, saving masks for uh, medical professionals, et cetera. Um, not be surprised that they try and cut the number of tests uh, in order to, uh, to slow the rate publicly. Um, I, I, I'd, be all, I'd be very concerned about some degree of manipulation going forward. Oh, yeah, I absolutely expect man- manipulation throughout the uh, whole affair. Uh, it, it is heartening to see that the death rate is uh, absolutely plummeting. It is definitely due to the fact that it's more young people who are, who are acquiring the illness. Rather, and so it's, it's in a younger population, like you said. Um, uh, but the number of cases is skyrocketing. That graph that, that, that does day by day and week by week uh, for Florida is astounding. Like they're going to have to add another another tier to it to accommodate uh, in a couple of days how many positive tests we have. Yeah, they, they've already had to because uh, the, the graph that I was keeping cut off at 2,000 cases per day because we never reached that even in the quote peak uh, in early April. And then suddenly 
we had to change it for one day. And I was thinking, okay, well, that's just going to be an outlier. And then it just kept going. Uh, so we had to add 2,000 to 3,000, 3,000 to 4,000, now 4,000 to 5,000. Uh, so so the, the chart looks very lopsided at this point, uh, yet the governor has dug into this very, um, this very strange position of, of denial. And uh, so my, my this summarizing on my piece about dereliction of duty, we have a class of politicians in this state who now have decided they are going to do whatever they have to do to placate donors and placate people to reopen the economy in order, because it is an election year also, so that's, that's part of the problem. I am heartened by the fact that you have companies like Apple now saying, you know what, we're going to close our locations in Florida again. You've got, um, you've got small restaurants, like there was one in Altamont Springs that was featured there. So I know Lynch's Pub in Jacksonville Beach, among others, saying, you know what, we've had a, couple, we've had a bit of a community spread in our area. Uh, let's shut down. We're just going to have to be um, uh, responsible here. We're going to have to we'll clean, clean our restaurants up. We're going to have to you know, shut down for a week or two and then maybe reopen in, in, a, in a more limited fashion after. So there are business owners that are being responsible, but there are politicians, including Democratic politicians, I'm telling you, the mayor of Fort Lauderdale, he's come across very badly in this whole thing. He's been anxious to reopen. He's been more anxious to reopen than DeSantis is, and now uh, is in denial about the fact that um, in his city, which is, uh, you know, Fort Lauderdale's a bit of a, a party center, um, that the reopening of bars and restaurants has led to a spike in cases. I mean, he doesn't want to concede that. So, um, and there, there seems to be, you mentioned, you started uh, the conversation talking about rural counties. There seems to be an effort by politicians in both parties, politicians that are actually in office in both parties, to push this off and saying, well, you know what, it's farm workers contracting it. It's, uh, it's people who are migrant laborers, which goes back to the whole point of kind of, the working conditions in the state, and that is an anti-labor state, and we could really use the Cesar Chavez type figure in Florida uh, to to, uh, to change things. But um, that they are they are they are pushing things off on that while ignoring large spikes in urban areas. Also, the la- the last two days have been the worst two days by far of the pandemic in Duval County, which is where, by the way, the Republican National Convention is going to be uh, in a month and a half. So, where Donald Trump good point. Renomination speech. Yeah, so they're just being biopic and irresponsible when it comes down to it. Well, all right, Karnak, thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. Um, And uh, let's let's keep talking about this because I have a feeling this is going. Well, everything we're talking about is accelerating, and so we need to we need to stay on top of this and keep reporting it. And uh, we'll bring you back on uh, real soon, like maybe like uh, in a week or two, to uh, to see where we're at. Outstanding. Thank you. Thank you so much, Cardick. All right, you guys, we're going to take just a teeny tiny break, and I'll be right back with Rick Spizak. Rick, do we got you on the line? I hope so. Can you hear me? 
I sure can. It's good to hear your voice. Okay, great. Well, thank you. It's so wonderful to be back. I have been on the road now for a bit of time, and uh, while I've contributed to an interview or two, it, it's just a real pleasure to be back with my my favorite senior producer, Ms. Brooke Hines. Brooke, uh, you're doing such a great job with the show, and you've taken it in so many wonderful directions. I want to congratulate you. Gosh, thank you so much. Um, so I know that you have a uh, um, some thoughts on COVID for tonight and some other stuff you wanted to share with us. And I wanted to segue from what Cardiff was talking about to uh, your stuff with with this little piece, this little interlude. Um, I'm a big fan of Harper's Magazine. Have been it, it. I've had a subscription since I was in college. Um, and if you're familiar with Harper's, then you're familiar with the Harper's Index, which is um, beginning of the magazine. And every month they just they juxtapose these uh, statistics and uh, numbers uh, in a manner that kind of tells a story and this month in harbors for the very first time that i've ever seen the magazine do this it's the first time i've ever seen them do a whole index on one subject and they did it on covid and some of these some of these statistics are just uh of course they always are in harbors index but let me read just a couple of them for you so Percentage of U.S. small business owners who say their business won't survive if the COVID-19 crisis, crisis lasts six months, uh, 62%. Uh, of restaurant owners who say so, 85%. Uh, estimated number of U.S. restaurants that closed for good in March is 20,000. And... Um, couple more percentage by which u.s households earning at least ninety thousand a year or more will have groceries delivered that's 80 that's the percentage by which uh, you're more likely uh, if you earn ninety thousand a year and the percentage of white workers in the united states who can work from home is 30 percentage of black workers who can is 20 and percentage of latino workers who can is just 16. So there's some some uh, nice cultural and economic insight there from the numbers. Well, you know, you're you're hitting on what I consider one of the real critical threads of the whole COVID-19 challenge. Let's say uh, I, I'm I'm a f- firm believer that. Uh, one of the one of the things that thinking people have to do is they have to face these challenges and and find bridges to to a better world with those challenges. Uh, I think if nothing else, one of the first takeaways needs to be this economy that America has been swimming in, let's say, uh, with the offshoring of manufacturing with the uh, the information technology and with the service economy, uh, all of that really suffers a complete revolution from COVID. To pretend otherwise is ridiculous. Uh, The statistics you presented 
on uh, the ability of statistically white people versus brown people versus black people to be employed remotely. Uh, you can't be a waiter. You can't be in the service industry remote. Mm-hmm. And we have seen these paradoxes where the most put-upon portion of our community, agricultural workers, which have been under threat through so many venues, whether it be the abuse of pesticides and herbicides in their workplace, the lack of safety, the lack of care, the lack of sanitation. Now these people are being deemed critical workers. Now now there's a paradox for you. Let's see, wait a minute, do we hate them because they're invading us or are they critical to the survival of that upper class? It is something that needs to be faced, not merely anecdotally, but structurally. Structural changes are going to have to occur in the economy. And there are very few people talking about the the economic impact, which you just pointed out so dramatically. Um, I have the good fortune, you have the good fortune, many of our peers, uh, progressives, have the ability to work remotely. However, that, as you just stated from those statistics, falls off dramatically when goes to the when one goes to working and working poor people, especially working poor people of color. Now combine that with the fact that because media consumption is up dramatically, I think the awareness, the studied awareness that the abuse of the minority communities has been rampant, cavalier, callous, brutal, uh, has just been outlined, has been underlined, circled, a red check by it. And I think while the numbers of black and brown people murdered by police under color of law probably hasn't changed, from five years ago or 10 years ago or 15 years ago. But the media impact when these murders are videotaped, suddenly there's nowhere to hide. That thin blue line has not been able to cover up the fact that people are walking around with phones. And in my human experience, in, in my 60 years here on this planet, I have talked to probably half a dozen, if not more, police officers who confided in me because of my skin color, assuming that I was in that same mentality that had this animus to multiple racial groups and that I would enjoy and support their brutality. I have been told stories by working police officers of the brutality they have visited on not just black and brown people, but economically disadvantaged people of all colors. Now, the fact that this is an issue that's come to the fore while people are unemployed, while people are even more concerned than they might otherwise be about their own economic instability, the recipe here and the mix is such that I don't think this is going to be an issue they can sweep under the rug. Now, combine that 
with this incredibly cavalier attitude that if we don't do testing, if we, if we ignore a problem, it'll go away. I'm afraid that there's a, a very, very serious reckoning coming due. And, uh, you know, say what you will, the kind of callous, brutal arguments that are being made both openly and by inference from the Trump people is is really going is it's the next challenge it, it absolutely is and you know I, say what you will about what the Democrats have proposed for the their silent uh, candidate I don't think the American people are going to be content with having this this incredible confrontation play out just between you know stick figures it's not going to be enough and the level of concern the level of care the level of fear is is awful and and when you hear statements like well let's see i wish they could just shoot well I, the the good thing would have been to shoot them that it would be great for the, the chinese to continue to build concentration camps we need to start shooting journalists these kind of statements from the bully pulpit by this poser, by this criminal crime lord, um, it is one of the most amazing challenges for the American Republic. Uh, who, who could have imagined that under our worst fears of the Trump election that we would be seeing this? Um, you see these problems. What, what's, your, what's your reaction? How are we going to be able to work through this Rubik's Cube of competing disasters? Uh, well, <laughs> um, I think that, I think you mentioned something that is, is a good thing, actually. You said that uh, media consumption is up. And I think that, that good media consumption is, is probably up in the sense of, I think there's a, a more sharing of, of written stuff and people going a little bit deeper. Uh, and I think that that's a net positive. Uh, I think that, um, you know, in a way we're all, uh, we're all kind of uh, spectators here because nobody has the ability to pull a lever and, and, and make this stuff, uh, uh, I, I, this political stuff go away, you know. I mean, we are uh, we are fighting each other on a lot of different fronts. Um, I did a I, I did a lot last week on cancel culture, on the the Matt Taibbi thing with uh, Lee Fong and Zaya Jelani, and that has uh, blossomed into a. a whole big it, it, it just seems like everyone's fighting with everyone um, I think that uh, I think that the election is very much up in the air um, uh, I think that I think that, that on the one hand you've got a lot of people, all the people that we know, and the, the folks that we would listen to on on media or read in the media, uh, we, we are of the same opinion of Trump that that he's a criminal and 
a horrible person who's got to go. Uh, I have no sense of being, I, I have no way of, of finding the information within Mega Maga world uh, that could back up anything I could say as to re- regarding if they're going to support him uh, in adequate numbers in November. Now, Cardiff just just said that uh, that that, that he is running up against people who have contracted COVID or their family members have contracted COVID. Mega Maga people who uh, you know since they you know, feeling this in their bones and in their body, uh, it's changed their perception away from that ideology. Uh, if that's the case, you know, if if uh, people catching COVID and understanding that it's real and that our response to it has been criminally uh, uh, inept, then then I think that that could be a turning point in November. I really do. Barring anything uh, wild that could happen between, you know, in July, August, September, October, we still have essentially four and a half months uh, where all kinds of hell could break loose. You know, one of the, one of the, um, uh, writers that I liked a lot in the, in the early nineties, was a a guy by the name of Terrence McKenna, and he had this this wacky idea that was called Time Wave Zero, uh, and it had to do with novelty. And he said that um, it was his prediction that novelty was going to increase and keep increasing until there is a transcendental object in history and you can't see past that transcendental object. He posited that that was in 2012. Uh, unfortunately, Terrence McKenna passed away long before that, uh, 2012 came and went. Uh, if I were to guess, <laughs> his time wave zero idea was was uh, he was probably just off a couple of years because here we are in 2020, and the the amount of novelty and by novelty I mean who'd have thunk that Donald Trump would be the president and who'd have thunk that we would be in the middle of a pandemic. Also, uh, you know, experiencing this kind of economic collapse on top of an economic collapse. I mean, just uh, and you know, on the good side that uh, that we've had a major movement of um, of people uh, and people power behind uh, Bernie Sanders' movement. You know, a lot of stuff novel has happened that we haven't seen before. So we've got four and a half. Can, can I, let me interrupt. Let me interrupt you mm-hmm. just for a second, because you you raise Brother Sanders' uh, comments, and I, I gotta ask you a question. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you heard, as I did, the comments by former President Barack Obama regarding Senator Sanders' positions, saying, you know, Senator Sanders really got it right. And that he had great ideas. Well, excuse me, Barack, <laughs> where the hell were you just a few months ago? What was your reaction when you heard the former president endorsing Senator Sanders' ideas on economics, health care, jobs? What, what was your what was your take on that? 
Is this extreme cynicism, or is this another faint left hoping to well, smear a vote or two for uh, the silent one, Mr. B? Uh, I think I think that there is a level of politics where extreme cynicism and uh, 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 fading left is uh, are blurred. That the lines between that are blurred. Uh, I think that for sure Obama recognizes that rhetorically it's the best thing that he can possibly do to acknowledge that. Uh, I think it's also a very cynical move because everybody on God's green earth knows that Obama cleared the uh, uh, slate for um, Joe Biden, you know, instead of, instead of letting it play out. And, and it, it looked like in January, February that Bernie Sanders was going to walk away with this until the field was cleared. So, so I think it's cynicism. I think that there's there's a, a rhetorical games that he had to he had to nod to that, but it's cynical. So so they're they're not going to put someone on the ticket who's a progressive. You know, I I do think so. My money is on Val Demings, uh, uh, who is the uh, count, uh, member of Congress from Central Florida, Congressional District 10. Um, she is a former um, chief of police in Orlando, a uh, woman of color, uh, a dynamic speaker, and uh, I think that she it has the right profile. I think she has the, the profile that Joe Biden is looking for. I think that the party is, is rooting for Kamala Harris, who has much similar uh, um, I, identity but none of those dangerous ideas. <laughs> none of those dangerous ideas, and if none of that is going to upset their their situation with donors, you know. Um, and at a certain point, you know, I'll just say this: at a certain point, I think that that there's a limitation to donor discourse making a lot of sense. So, in the middle of a primary season. Uh, uh, Donor, our discourse, discourse on donors is, is very pertinent. When, it, when we're at this point, uh, and, and it just seems like Obama's just floating this really weird thing for no reason at all, um, I, think that, I think that best case scenario, he's putting a, a, a progressive veneer on what he hopes for the donors will be a furtherance of what he was doing during his administration, if that makes any sense. It does. It does. Feigning left, looking like you you support an idea or two from the progressive side, while meanwhile steering right back to to all those wonderful people from Wall Street. Mm. <laughs> Yes. Well, and uh, yes. I was just going to say one other topic that I, I feel mm-hmm. really, um, really is worth discussing and, and raising at this critical juncture. Uh, we have had, uh, just like the <clears throat> the ugly underbelly of police brutality, uh, the brutality of the spying on Americans from social media combined with the commercialization 
of our data uh, trail and then mm-hmm. its combination with the surveillance state uh, is really bringing a whole other set of concerns to the fore and this is another one of those uh, multi-front issues that we have to deal with and with the increasing instability socially they're they're using more surveillance they're combining surveillance uh, we've heard many stories about how well they learned this on Facebook and then they arrested they learned this on Facebook and then they did this and that uh, I'm afraid that social media uh, for for its with its community building boon uh, has become such a tool of the surveillance state that we really need to address if there's any chance of putting the brakes on we really need to focus on that as well I think it's a challenge for those of us who are both data literate and progressives uh, thank you so much yeah thank you for inviting me on tonight and thank you for joining us so much. It's always so good to hear from you. And on the road, I can't wait to hear uh, where your travels take you next and what what lies in store. So keep us to praise. Okay. Thanks again, Brooke. And my, my best to all of you out there. Uh, stay safe, my friends, and keep thinking. It's critical. Good night. Absolutely. All right, you guys, that was Rick Spizak, uh, um, podcaster extraordinaire, super good friend, uh, living the dream uh, right now. He's uh, um, traveling the U.S. in, a, uh, in an RV, looking for new, new adventures and new places to, to land. Uh, saw an interesting article this week about uh, COVID is... Um, encouraging more people like RV sales and camper sales have soared because people are, you know, looking for something different to do. You can't, you don't have the access to, you know, just go to a hotel or a a vacation rental. At least it's not as easy as it was and not as safe, uh, honestly. So people are doing the RV thing and uh, uh, Rick got in under the, under the, uh, um, curtain there, you know, he was a, he was an early adopter of this. So, you know, that's, and it's also, my goodness, it's a, a big, uh, life goal of mine to hit the road with the dogs and, um, and, uh, and an Airstream, which kind of sucks because like an Airstream requires, a, a truck to pull it with and I don't think I can fit a truck in my garage. I get I get things to work out. I mean it's not completely nailed down yet, but I have gone shopping for airstreams plenty on in real life and on the internet and uh I'll 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 take a used one any day. But um you know if if I win the lottery you better believe I'm going to put the $50,000 down on that 26-footer that's out there on I-4 between Orlando and Tampa. Um, I got a few more of these Harper's Index uh, tidbits to share with you as we uh, wait for Janine to come on the line. 
this is something that I thought was really interesting. So um, portion of British adults under lockdown who have spent more time catching up with friends and family than usual. Uh, two out of five. So you get uh, two fifths of um, British adults spending more time catching up with friends and family. Um, percent of those who have spent less money than usual is three out of five. And that's, you know, three people out of five people spending less money than usual makes total sense. We're not going to restaurants. We're not going to bars. Um, we are spending a little bit less. And a percent who wants, quote, everything to go back to how it was when lockdown was over is only one in 10. So, so there's, a, there's a, a broad cultural sense that, that, that there's something good about turning down the volume and there's something good about uh, spending some time at home and working from home and being together. And I think that um, if just one in 10 people want things to go back to how they were, we need to examine why that is, you know, what it is that's, uh, that's changing things uh, in people's minds. And I, and, you know, I think it's a, I think it has a little bit to do with, um, you know, uh, life under COVID is um, a little more laid back and it's a little more, it's a little tender, more tender, and it's a little more um, life size. It's a, it's a human scale rather than giant capitalist big box store, giant office building size. All right, I'm going to take a short break, and I'll be right back with Janine Moloff. And we're back. Uh, hold on. Janine, are, do we have you there? Yes. Hi, Brooke. Hey. Welcome. It is so good to hear you. And this week we are talking about uh, what we talked earlier about the artifice behind police reforms or what might possibly be passed off as police reform. So uh, take, right. take, uh, take it away. Okay. Well, I'll just start. Now that serious calls have been made to defund the police nationwide, we see politicians from our fraudulent two-party system offer up a bounty of alleged reforms 
that on the surface look reasonable. Many of these recycled proposed reforms are thought to be part of a blatant attempt to derail the defund the police movement. Some others are thought to be little more than cynical moves engineered to protect the 1%, while again pacifying the more affluent white progressive demographic who are unable to tear away the artifice of this con job. The truth behind these reforms is quite different. Not only are these alleged reforms disingenuous, they are the legal equivalent of placing a Band-Aid on a cancer. This report will tear away some of the artifice behind these offer solutions with the actual realities on the ground and then demand some tangible and legitimate changes. Previously enacted reforms in Camden, New Jersey, Houston, and Atlanta have clearly and New York have clearly demonstrated that no amount of alleged training will solve the problem. Training, in my opinion, won't stop racist officers from committing what is a race war as long as those same officers know they can do so with legal impunity. The problem isn't necessarily the training. The problem is the people who strap on a gun, commit race war, and then hide behind the badge. So in the middle of the present public relations, or you really should call it propaganda campaign, designed to derail the defund movement with calls for more training, the same calls were heard over six years ago from the Ferguson protests. Let's look at some of the examples of this dubious training and its questionable efficacy. I'm going to look at three, actually four examples where retraining was implemented. There are New York City, Camden, New Jersey, Houston, Texas, and Atlanta, Georgia. And then finally, I'm going to conclude with Ferguson in the greater St. Louis area. So from the intercept on June 16, 2020, uh, Alice Berry and Ryan Devereaux wrote basically what was titled Disbanding Notorious NYPD Anti-Crime Unit is a Shell Game, Critics Say, end quote. So they quote New York Police Commissioner Dermot Shea, um, who, you know, announced that the department is now disbanding this plainclothes unit that consists of some 600 officers and the Intercept called this band of these 600 officers, classified them as hyper-aggressive and, quote, notoriously trigger-happy plainclothes unit. And this is after New York experienced these massive continuous protests against police brutality after, you know, the George Floyd murder. Many of these officers will be transferred to the Detectives Bureau or what the NYPD calls Community Policing Force. And some will kept, be kept to patrol the subways. And that's according to what Dermot Shea said. And Shea also claimed that the NYPD has, quote, replaced its prior emphasis on brute force with an embrace of intelligence and technology-driven policing, end quote. And Shea also told reporters, quote, this is a seismic shift in the culture of how the NYPD polices its great city, end quote. Now, not everyone believes this hype. Okay, so enter... Uh, Monifa Bendele at Mom's Rising. Like a lot of reform advocates, she is very uh, suspicious and wary of what she calls the empty talk of reform. And she's also the vice president of many at, of criminal justice campaigns at Mom's Rising, and she's a member of the policy leadership team for the Movement for Black Lives. And she did call this a shell game and a distraction. And it really is to just take people's attention away, she said, from growing calls to defund the New York Police Department. And to quote Bandele, quote, it's moving around resources and actual police officers shuffling them around within the department to make it look like what we're asking for. 
well, we're actually calling for a much larger systemic shift. And this is, end quote, that's what Bandelli called the intercept. Um, to go on, she said, quote, we're, ta we're not talking about shuffling resources and people within the police department. We're talking about moving around resources within the citywide budget in a way that makes our community safer. That means actually moving money out of the NYPD budget and moving those resources into education, housing, mental health services, homeless services, et cetera. And, and to quote further, quote, internal personnel changes don't really address the fact that our communities are over-policed and under-resourced, end quote. And I, I really want to focus on that phrase because Ms. Bandele said it perfectly. Too many lower-income uh, communities and communities of color are literally over-policed and under-resourced. Now, Albert Kahn uh, basically is the project director for the Surveillance Technology Oversight uh, Project. And Mr. Khan also called this move by NYPD to disband this unit a publicity stunt. And uh, to quote Khan, he said they tried the same tactic before. He told The Intercept it's a simply an easy way for them to take a page at the NYPD Public Relations Handbook and avoid real structural reform. And if these officers are simply doubling, doubling down on the NYPD bias and broken surveillance of communities of color, it's going to result in more police violence, end quote. And now a lot of this also looks, according to The Intercept, uh, these writers, Devereaux and Sperry, deja vu when they consider what happened in 1999 when Amadou, Amadou Diallo was murdered as well. And for people that aren't familiar, he was a West African immigrant. He was selling socks and gloves in Manhattan just to try and send money back home to his family. The cops claimed that he made furtive gestures, and that cost him his life. Uh, the police shot him 41 times, and 19 of those bullets hit his corpse. And, you know, once again, there was a lawsuit that followed. 14 years later, um, the court found that the NYPD had been racially profiling in very widespread ways. And it helped elevate the the, um, the mayor now, but that's not really the issue. The unit behind Diallo's police murder was the NYPD Street Crimes Unit. And again, these were plainclothes cops, um, and they were all part of what was in fashion then of a, a form of policing called broken windows. And the Cato Institute, which is not exactly known as a liberal bastion, did a 2000 report, and they described the culture of that plainclothes division as, quote, militaristic with officers talking of, quote, retaking neighborhoods, end quote. They wore badges to indicate what they were doing. And this is all, you know, part of it. So you have Commissioner Shea in, right now in the NYPD, and he's really pushing, you know, uh, the fact that, according to him, quote, we welcome reform, but we also believe that meaningful reform starts from within, end quote. And that's the same old fox guarding the hen house. It's, it's never been a good idea, at least not for the dead hens. And this is just really following suit with the former NYPD commissioner, William Bratton, okay? Um, you know, Bratton was quoted as saying, quote, there are police reformers in 2016 from outside the profession who think that changing police culture is a matter of passing regulations, establishing oversight bodies and more or less legislating a new order. Bratton wrote, end quote, he wrote it in op-ed then in 2016. Bratton went on to write, quote, it is not. 
Such oversight usually has only marginal impact. What changes police culture is leadership from within, end quote. Now, I would argue that what changes police culture and holds it accountable is forcing the police to actually obey the law and controlling the purse strings from outside the department. So, you know, again, this new response six years after Ferguson and the world witnessing what Ferguson was, it's just more incrementalism, no true change. It's consistent with what the Obama administration did, their tepid response to police brutality. They called it community, community policing, but the fact was it was just uh, basically called, according to The Intercept, a gentler, friendlier police presence on the surface, but it was still broken windows policing. Um, you know, once again, people are cited for minute little things, and it, it's a false image. So this Intercept piece went on to describe the false image of community policing because it's really been pushed. And it is a false image. It's used to justify, as, as the Bandela said, the over-policing of low-income areas and communities of color and the big price tag that comes with that police overreach, whether it's... Uh, Computer, uh, tech companies with different methods of surveillance or weapons manufacturers, this is basically, you know, a boondoggle for them. In the meanwhile, our public schools, public health systems, and so on and so forth, uh, any uh, home, housing assistance for the homeless, that's all on the chopping block. The police budgets are never cut. And so, you know, again, the Intercept did a, an investigation in 2018 on 21st century policing. And what they found was, for instance, in the anti-crime unit that Shea previously had, that he's now reassigned the officers, they found that officers from that unit shot people to death at considerably higher rates than their colleagues. And there even is a group that said data from what they call the Fatal Encounters Project and what they found was that nearly a third of the city's lethal shootings came from the plainclothes NYPD police officers from that unit. Uh, again, they're self-directed. There's absolute, very little transparency and even less accountability. And I can go down the list here. NYPD, you know, shifted from stop and frisk after that was declared, for instance, unconstitutional by the courts to over-surveillance in the guise of what they call anti-gang policing, and they called it, quote, Operation Crew Cut. And so, again, this surveillance led to, according to The Intercept, um, sweeps of mass raids that caught up a lot of young people. It led to severe expansion of, this, of a secretive gang database that's being maintained by the NYPD, and that as of 2018, in 2018, that list included about 42,000 people. And the people, whether you were listed there or not, um, this gang database, was the criterion were, were very arbitrary. And often people, the criterion was in the absence of any sort of criminal behavior. So once again, it's very biased. There's no transparency and there's no accountability. Now we look at the Camden Police Department which has been shown to be like a model for policing in the post-George Floyd era. And, you know, again, this was uh, a piece written by um, The Appeal, Brendan McQuaid, and basically 
after getting all this praise, you know, the McQuaid said that behind this what he called reformist mask was again this embracing of not only broken windows policing, but in the form of massive on nonstop surveillance, which is what is called the Camden model. And it is not a good idea. You're not going to see massive surveillance like this in wealthier areas necessarily. And who are they surveying? Who are they targeting? Again, persons of color and, and lower income people, not not the white man who drives up in a late model BMW. So the Camden model switches from mass incarceration to mass supervision and surveillance. And some people call it bullies with a badge because you're using officers to address social problems. And what's happened is that you have police that are literally doing pedestrian stops. So instead of stop and frisk, they call it a pedestrian stop. And people are being given tickets and brutalized and manhandled for jaywalking. And no, I'm not kidding. And unfortunately, Obama's task force on 21st century policing embraced of this guardian mindset, and again, that's just more propaganda to justify over-policing while maintaining present levels of overfunded police. And so the guardian zones, as they call them, of over-policing, you know, again, instead of funding opportunity zones, say for small business or micro-business, they're funding these um, these guardian zones. And so, you know, you can be brute, you can expect to be abused by a police officer for walking down the street, for jaywalking, this pedestrian stop. It's the new, I call it the new stop and frisk with a happy face. The police think that it is, they're talking to people, but it's really about quality of life offenses, which is just code for broken windows policing. Uh, so, you know, basically uh, any petty offense is going to get you a problem. Um, and what they found in Camden was that their municipal court, as reported by the inquirer, found that they could not, pro they were having a hard time processing the 125,000 cases, citations, and tickets this new force issued in one year's time. That's a 97,000 case increase. And again, it was for non-criminal petty offenses. Uh, there was one Camden police officer that wrote 99 tickets for riding a bicycle without a bell. The previous year they issued one. So broken windows policing is or what they call community policing invites constant harassment and abuse of nonviolent people. And once again, who do you think a racist police force is going to target? They're going to target persons of color and any white allies that dare to go up against them. The NAACP has come up against this. Um, once again, you know, and this this uh, this uh, author Brendan McQuaid, who is an assistant professor of criminology at the University of Southern Maine, uh, and an attorney, basically said he calls this data-driven approach what they're claiming copaganda, and it's it's basically ubiquitous, constant surveillance, aggressive policing, and the use of tear gas. All the same, and he told him, "quote Don't believe the hype." Now we look at Houston. You have Chief Art Acevedo. Here he's walking arm in arm during a Justice for George Floyd event, May 30th. You know, we see Chief Acevedo, you know, he's, he's mourning and he's crying and he's quoted saying, quote, I may not be black, but I am God's child, you know, and he keeps going. The only thing is this, 
On June 1st, when Christiane Amapur, according to this author, interviewed Acevedo on CNN, where he's, you know, extending his deepest condolences, all right, and said that the police, quote, stand with the community and the community stands with the police. While the chief mourned George Floyd's passing and was getting kudos on CNN from Christiane Amanpour, his same police department was brutalizing protesters and lying about it. And there's video evidence that was viewed by the writer from The Appeal showing, among other things, a Houston police officer trampling a woman with his horse and violently handcuffing a woman in a wheelchair. The Houston Police Department also denied peddling protesters, uh, by, and this was called out by multiple activists. And peddling is basically where they surround you, they tell you to leave or risk arrest, then they surround you and make sure you can't get out, and then they pound on you. I've been kettled myself, actually. The ACLU attorney in Houston called out kettling as an unconstitutional form of mass detention, and it is. Video from the Houston protests from multiple sources shows the officers kettling the protesters. And in some instances, they are, you know, greeting them with a wall of police. Um, Ashton P. Woods, who was quoted, who was an activist with Black Lives Matter Houston, and told the appeal, quote, my message to Chief Art Acevedo is to stop lying, because the same people walking with him were the same people pepper spraying us later. I think that pretty much tells the truth. And the police propaganda fraud is called as they kneel for media cameras. Other members of the police departments brutalize protesters. And it looks like Chief Acevedo has a history of withholding video evidence as well. Um, when he was Austin police chief as well, his officers repeatedly arrested people violently for jaywalking. Um, he isn't so innocent or so wonderful, but I just don't have time to go over it all. Again, protesters in Houston found a violent wall of officers blocking their exit, Kettling once again. Undercover officers lied, pretended they were protesters in Houston and led them into the wall of police officers tear gassing them. Sounds a lot like Ferguson, if you ask me. And so we have this. And now we go further and we go to Atlanta and we have Mayor Keisha Lance Bottoms who is basically being considered a possible running mate for Joe Biden. But here, she's wanting $13 million more million for police, even after four of her officers were fired for using excessive force. And, and mind you, the schools and everything has been cut to bare bones. But Mayor Bottoms, is proposed, she's proposed $40 million in spending cuts, for instance, and none of those. Again, you have a case where police pay students. They case two college students, uh, the Messiah Young and Tanya Pilgrim. And again, they had done nothing wrong except basically just been there. Um, and the police in Atlanta under Mayor Bottoms also arrested a legal observer, which you're not supposed to do. And they arrested somebody named Asia Parks, who is a legal observer with the National, with the National Law Guild. And Parks was in the June 1st protest downtown wearing a neon hat, you know, that identifies them as a legal observer. And everywhere that you go, whether it's here in the U.S., every, every place in the U.S., but also overseas, when you see those vests or those neon caps and it says LO or legal observers, the police know to leave them alone because they're there just to make sure that things go the way it's supposed to. But these police didn't want that witness. And so police took her into custody, 
they um, gave them some paper-thin blue masks to wear to protect against COVID, but they took them in a packed prison bus to the Atlanta City Detention Center. Um, she said that the, this legal observer said officers did not enforce social distancing guidelines either on the bus or at the, or at the jail. She was detained for 17 hours. Again, you're not supposed to detain a legal officer. It's like detaining your attorney. And again, we don't see Mayor Bottom saying anything about this. Um, and so, you know, another group, the Racial Justice Action Center in Atlanta, told the appeal, which is what this, where this article comes from, and the person's name is Ochito Bevera, that Atlanta really needs to follow the lead of cities like Los Angeles. And in Los Angeles, Mayor Garcetti plans to divert $150 million from police and send that money to healing and health services in black communities and communities of color. Again, Mayor Bottoms is good in front of the cameras, but her practice is not the same as what she's preaching. So, again, there's more that goes on, but being a um, uh, basically a veteran of Ferguson, this looks very familiar. So, in conclusion, by now the evidence of systemic police criminality has become so blatant that we have police chiefs and mayors tripping over themselves and their PR directors to be seen showing the correct amount of humility and compassion, all while the media cameras are rolling. Unfortunately, those misdirected visuals do nothing to correct the systemic injustice faced daily by persons of color. Those who contend that training will cure the systemic police brutality and criminality are lying to all of us. It's been over six years since the police murder of Michael Brown and the massive protests in Ferguson witnessed worldwide, and very little has changed in terms of any meaningful measures of police transparency and accountability, as stated in another report. The police in this country are functioning as they were intended. Policing in the USA isn't broken. It was designed to be a criminal action committing a genocide. It's nearly impossible to separate police brutality from the selfish interests of the billionaire class, a.k.a. the 1%. Police exist to protect and serve the very wealthy and no one else. For any of us to sustain the dangerous myth that the police are here to help the average citizen is to be an enabling force to systemic racism, misogyny, and various other bigotries that serve to divide the working class. We cannot forge together a better future for our children if we are divided by contrived differences. But those divisions serve to maintain the illegitimate political power of the 1%. To think otherwise is foolish. No police reforms will ever work as long as the people are denied meaningful systems of public transparency and accountability. U.S. mayors and police chiefs are working feverishly to discredit the defund movement. They know that once monies are diverted from violent police departments to fully fund public schools and public health and housing for the homeless and mental health services, for example, that the crime rate will decline and their jobs will be in jeopardy. They have had over six years to get the reform issue right. Unfortunately, there is far too much money to be made in dubious law enforcement and private security. Ironically, these mayors and police chiefs profiled here know they are what you in Nazi terms the capos the stormtroopers protecting them for the 1%. Yet they want the public to drink the servant protected Kool-Aid. All the while, their stormtroopers attack wheelchair-bound women and skinny teenagers. In conclusion, face it, the problem isn't necessarily the police training. 
The problem lies with the racist enablers funding a police-sponsored genocide and the very people who strap on a gun, commit race war, and hide behind the badge. And that's my report. Wow. That is so powerful. And, you know, I'm so glad I mentioned earlier this piece about uh, how corporations bankroll police foundations without oversight because uh, and and I understand like this is hard for you know civilians you know by civilians I I mean like you know just normal people audience listeners Uh, but here's a good example the New York City Police Foundation Gala is sponsored by a slew of powerhouse New York City law firms and developers right Robert Schumer a partner at Paul Weiss Rifkin is the brother of the Senate Majority Leader, Uh, Chuck Chuck Schumer. Schumer. (laughs) Yeah. And sits on the New York City Police Foundation Board of Trustees. So you've got You've got all of this, uh, uh, you know, power mapping. If you're right. map, map all of the power oh, relationships, yeah. they're they're all oh, it's yeah. like a chain. They're it's, they're it's they're feeding money. each it, other. It, yeah, it's big money. Uh, my former senator um, John Ashcroft went into the private security business, where basically Eric Prince's um, company, um, who's he's Betsy DeVos's uh, brother. His company, Blackwater, went through a couple different name changes, and basically they're mercenaries. They're mercenary soldiers, mercenary police, and when you pair the services of mercenary police, in addition to big money spent on arms manufacturers and then just the high-tech industry in terms of surveillance and so-called non-lethal weapons, which often are lethal, actually, um, mm-hmm. you're talking big money. This is a major thing on the stock market. And these non-lethal weapons aren't non-lethal, okay? You know, I have respiratory issues. Tear gas could actually kill me. And so mm-hmm. there's, this is not non-lethal. And, you know, once again, this is big money. It is growth industry, and it is to prevent basically what could be a, a renaissance of the American workers so they can get a better deal. And they're using the oldest prejudice that we have here, which is racism. And once again, it is inexcusable. Um, And when you pair that with several SCOTUS decisions that have been wielded and, frankly, interpreted too broadly, then you have police that not only have a license to kill, but they have a license to kill with immunity, and they can lie. You know, during Ferguson, we found out that police, many police routinely perjure themselves in court, and they have a turn for it. They call it test-aligning. So what is it going to take? You can't change the minds and hearts of rabid racists and neo-Nazis with training. That's absurd. You have to That's hire right. these people, and you have to bring in honest people and have reasonable budgets. And then you need to fund your public schools and fund mental health and fund public health during COVID and all these other things where basically every public service has been tax garbed except the police. They right. become basically a parasite on our communities. Right. And we're going to have to leave it there because we're about to run out of time. Yeah. Janine, thank you so much. I can't wait to My hear pleasure. what you got next week. And uh, we'll see you then. <laughs> okay. Oh, thank, thank you, you so much. Okay. And you guys, I'm going to get out of here really quick. Uh, oh, 
girl we'll talk to you again next weekend. Napoli because she missed the scenery, the native dances and the charming songs. But wait a minute, something's wrong. Calabrese do the mambo like a crazy with a hey, mambo. Don't want a tarantella, hey, mambo. No more mozzarella, hey, mambo. Mambo Italiano, try an enchilada with the fish bacala. And an egg on I love.